Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with John Wertheim, executive editor and tennis writer at Sports Illustrated, 60 Minutes correspondent, on-air personality, tennis channel. Uh, He's something else, one of my favorites, and uh, always enjoy having him on the show. This is the uh, second time. Uh, We get into a quick kind of overarching summary of, of 2020, but not so much the tennis side, more kind of dealing with with the pandemic and kind of trudging forward. Uh, what we can expect from 2021, the Australian Open, some bold predictions that John has for uh, for next season, tennis data, tennis analytics, uh, just just a lot of things. You know, really hard to to summarize, but a, a wide ranging conversation. Uh, hopefully, just what you need heading into 2021. Happy New Year, everyone! Without further ado. Here's John Wertheim. We're joined once again by John Wertheim. You know him very well for his work at Tennis Channel, Sports Illustrated, and 60 Minutes, one of my all-around favorites. John, oh, thanks awesome. thanks for coming on. Uh, pleasure. It's quite a buildup. Um, if, uh, if only people knew the surroundings where we were doing this. This is, uh, this is COVID Zooming we're doing, but nice to be here. Good to, good to see you. Yeah, I like I love it. We got the SI background. There, there are no complaints on my end. Right. Uh, last time we spoke, it was the height of uncertainty, and we were having conversations like, "Is the U.S. Open going to happen? And is tennis well suited for the pandemic because the athletes can distance, or is it bad because of all the travel?" So now uh, we're recording in 2020, but this is going to be released in 2021. How do you you look back and, and characterize tennis's dealings through the the pandemic in 2020? Oh man, I mean, I, I was going to say I think those those questions to some extent still hold. Um, we we are not out of the woods by any stretch, but but who is? I you know it was a mixed bag, honestly. I mean, I, I think um, you sort of look at the last year in tennis, and there were a, a lot of uh, I mean, I, I think there were a lot of a lot of winners and a lot of unforced errors. And I, I mean, I think what's disappointing is that a lot of the, the errors were unforced and there was behavior by players that not only was reflected poorly on the sport and dangerous and inadvisable, but I think that has in some ways impacted decisions going forward. If you can't trust these guys to do the right thing and predominantly they've been guys, um, that's a complication. I, I heard from non-tennis sources that this was a real sticking point with the Australian government, that they Google tennis and they may not even be fans so what do they hear they hear about adria tour and anti-vax and sam query and they hear about some of these regrettable decisions um that's all the unforced error i mean on on the plus side of the ledger on on the winning side i think tennis overall did pretty well for itself and players got paid not as much as they wanted to or would have absent the pandemic but we got we got three of the four majors played and the fourth one paid a little prize money that of course being wimbledon and the French Open was scheduled at a later date, but it happened, and Nadal won, and Svantec broke through, and that's what we were talking about, not protocols and PPEs. And the U.S. Open, I think, was it was a towering success in a lot of ways. And in the end, I, I think we saw small acts of kindness that offset some of the, the knucklehead behavior. Overall, um, it, it was mixed. I, I don't want to say it was a, a smashing success. I don't want to say tennis embarrassed itself. I think tennis actually showed some, some innovation and some collaboration we don't always see. And like we talked about, whatever it was, six months ago, um, it, it's not easy for an international sport. And you, you look at the global map of 
of COVID rates and it's not evenly distributed and all governments are not treating it the same way. When you have players from all over the world, that's really complicated. So um, all, all of which is a, a long answer to, to a good question, which is uh, it, was, it was a bit of a mixed bag, but here we are, it's kicking off 2021 and we have dates for the first quarter of the year. We've got a vaccine. So, so mm-hmm. hopefully things will, will stabilize. I agree on all counts. If I think about lessons learned, right? What can the tournaments now, now the tournaments that are being held at the beginning of 2021 have had way more time to prepare for, and you know, they should have a better idea of what to expect. Lessons learned. I think I go right to the French open and what happened with Alexander Zverev playing with symptoms and and no test for four days. The The thing that jumps in my mind is you can't, have you can't expect players to self-police that's the number one in in my head but i'm curious you know what do you think were the major lessons learned for the tournaments who are watching i i think that's i think that's up there um i think you know a, a lot of this i don't know if this is specific to tennis but you know not, 99 people can behave responsibly like adults and and one person uh for willful blindness or selfishness or for whatever reason can really ruin it for everyone. But I mean, the, the one thing I would stress is just that the situation is, and this is what makes it tricky. The situation in Australia is much different from the situation in Western Europe in October, which was different from New York. I mean, when, when we recorded, remember Elmhurst Queens, which is a, you know, a, a city bike ride away from the tennis center was ground zero globally for this pandemic. And by the time the U S open rolled around the rates in New York had completely boomeranged and reversed and it was a much different situation and people were eating outdoors and there was actually pushback to the bubble. So, I mean, I think there's some general lessons about tennis and travel and quarantine and, you know, really impressing upon people that um, behavior matters. I mean, it's not just, if Zverev wants to you know, t- take whatever risk in his personal life, God bless him. But th- this is the equivalent of driving on, you know, this is driving on the wrong side of the road. I mean, this is something that impacts everyone. And I'm not sure that message, um, both within tennis and, and more broadly, I- I'm still not sure that message has quite gotten through that your behavior is, you know, you don't, if you want your freedom, uh, feel free not to wear a mask at home. But when you go into Walmart, that's impacting everyone else. I'm still not sure that is completely uh, crystallized with everyone. Um, I, I think some of this too goes to tennis. It's an individual sport. You're always sort of wondering if the other guy's trying to pull one off at you. You know, you look, you go to the tournaments and you go in the lounge, and there's an element of of friendship and, and amity and collegiality. But you also see players are looking at the computer about the cutoffs for the rankings, and they're. I mean, it, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's this is an individual sport, and that is not necessarily consistent with. Uh, responsible behavior that benefits a community. So some of this, I think, is um, endemic to tennis. I mean, again, I, I think most players were terrific and responsible. And, you know, Djokovic, the Adria tour was an unmitigated fiasco. The flip side is this guy was on the front lines trying to make sure that guys with triple digit rankings were getting paid. So, you know, I, I don't think there's um, a simple answer here. And I, I think you're right that these tournaments have had a little extra time. But I don't, you know, the the, the Miami Open, the calendar was just released yesterday mm-hmm. for the first quarter of, of, uh, of 2021. Um, Indian Wells, as, as we um, suspected for a long time, is officially being postponed. Miami is on. I don't know. I mean, is, is the situation in Florida 
3,600 people died yesterday. I mean, I don't know. Is it is the uh, in the United States? Is the situation in Florida today going to be what it is in, in late March when this event is in high gear? Um, I, I just think there's still so many variables. Even the ATP, I'll tell you, the ATP Cup, um, which is going to happen prior to the Australian Open, the players were given five different scenarios about prize money based on attendance. So you, you get your full check if it's 100%, and then it goes down uh, to, to roughly half if it's no fans. So this event is four weeks away, and Australia doesn't even know how many fans are going to be accommodated from zero to 100%. So, I mean, I guess there's some lessons we can learn looking back at 2020, but the flip side is it is a very fluid situation. Uh, that's It's wild. It's it's prepare for the for the unexpected, I would say, right? Yeah. Uh, speaking of a uh, individual sport, I misread this off season. I'll say that because I I thought that there was going to be some kind of political reckoning uh, this uh, you know this this month in in tennis this off season. Uh, I thought the PTPA was going to kind of come out from from the underground, so to speak, and their kind of mysterious purgatory. And there were going to be some discussions between them and the ATP and the player council. And I thought we were going to get some action here. Nothing happened. How did I misread this? Why, what's going on here? Uh, that is a great question. And uh, I mean, I think the fact that we don't have answers sort of goes to the root of this, which is some of this, I think is pandemic related, right? You're not seeing these pl players are doing this all over zoom we're not having in-person meetings. I think that is not um, ideal if you're trying to start this breakaway group. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you feel. I'm, I'm just, I'm really torn philosophically. I mean, I think the players need better representation. I think some sort of collective bargaining would help them. I think the ATP model probably worked decades ago. I don't think it reflects a reality. And the flip side of that is to come out of a pandemic to a tournament with a bubble that's really taking a financial hit to pay you full prize money on the eve of the tournament to have this vague press conference that excludes the women and doesn't really come forth with any sort of specifics was just so wrongheaded. So, I mean, I think the idea of a union, the idea of shaking up the business model, the idea of looking for more formal representation, great, but but the execution here has just been absolutely dismal. Some of it compounded by a pandemic, to be sure. Some of it, I mean, I don't know if you saw Djokovic had some comments recently about how, you know, we, we haven't really formulated uh, pol policy and objectives. Um, and you're thinking, wait, wait a second, may maybe you want to do that first before you start having photo ops at the U.S. Open on the eve of the first major back after a global pandemic. So um, I, I think the idea of some sort of organized labor, some kind of union, some kind of players association, great idea, long overdue. Um, but I think doing it vaguely in a pandemic, you want, you know, player council representation, you don't want player council. I mean, it's just the, the execution has really been, um, has been pretty lacking here. Yeah, I've, I've kept a, a very open mind like yourself about the PTPA. Maybe it'll be a great thing, but at the moment, it's still so abstract and kind of inexcusably so, or, you know, basically you have to just sit back and reserve judgment until it becomes less abstract. And they really kind of tell us what they're fighting for. Uh, it's, it's hard to make a, a judgment until they're able to do that. So 
I guess let's go to um, to Australia now. Uh, this the situation, and as you said, it's so tennis is affected by the various governments and geography and what the situation is with COVID nineteen in the given locations. And in Australia, it seems to be low cases, strict measures. That's kind of the double the double whammy there, and those two probably aren't unrelated. But right now, do I have this correct? Players will travel to Australia two weeks before the tournament. They will be travel restricted from the hotel um, and the courts. So they're going to be spending about 19 hours a day pretty much in their hotel. And then the rest will be kind of allotted towards training and, and eating and all that. Very, very regimented, it seems. Yeah, I, I don't think it's two weeks before the tournament, though. I mean, I think... Uh... The date of departure is 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 Before. nigh. I mean, I think they're, they're yeah. leaving very early, and there are going to be a number of events in and around Melbourne prior to. I mean, we talked about the ATP Cup is, is the week before. There will be a women's event as well. There will be an alternative event. Um, the, the qualifying is going on in the Middle East, which is an interesting uh, twist. I'm, th- I'm thinking, imagine being an Australian qualifier who has to leave home go to the Middle East, halfway across the world, without the guarantee, then you you know you've got to return home and you might be returning home knowing you're in the main draw and you may just have to go back and quarantine for two weeks. Um, That that is high risk, high reward. And yeah, I mean, what what I've heard about Australia is that, as as you say, the rates are exceptionally, um, you know, enviably low. The restrictions are high. And so you go through this quarantine. You're right. You, I mean, players, like someone had sent me the form. I mean, you've got to already pick your practice partner and you've got to tell the government your whereabouts. And I mean, it's, this is strict stuff. This is not uh, the honor system here. Once you get through that quarantine, though, it's like you're home free. I mean, then you're, you're eating in restaurants and then you're sort of once you can get past and basically essentially prove you're negative. Um, People, I, I was told it's, it's almost a, a conventional tournament after that. So, um, you know, it, it's going to be much different from the U.S. Open and the French Open where the players, they, they came, they played, they left. I mean, there was no player lounge scene. There was no lingering. There was no, I mean, the press conferences were by Zoom and the players got out of there. Um, I think once the tournament starts to the players, it'll seem much more like a conventional tournament. But there is that strict quarantine that we haven't seen at uh, the previous two majors played post-COVID. Right. Well, that sounds really good to me. And it sounds like something that the players could, could get behind in, in terms of uh, the, the grand scheme of things. But the, the fight was that they needed to be able to train during those two weeks, right? And that was kind of the, the right. point of contention. Mm-hmm. That, that makes sense to me. You can't, you can't have a professional athlete literally uh, sedentary for, for two weeks and then expect them to go compete. I think, I think we've reached a reasonable solution there right um yeah i mean it's, it's an interesting kind of bit of just sort of speculating i mean i think i think you're right and i think that was look i, I think tennis australia was was on it the players were on it they said look you, you can't expect us to sit and watch netflix for two weeks and then all of a sudden go out there and heat and play best of five matches um the flip side i i've been really impressed with the level of play and, and professionalism and um i can't remember i did a podcast with someone in the you know April or May, and it was sort of, ha which players do you think are going to put on 20 pounds drinking beer and eating Cheetos and, and take this quarantine, uh, you know, and, and have to 
get themselves into shape the way, you know, boxers and NFL players go to go to pot in the offseason. We didn't see that at all. I don't think anyone looked at these reset tournaments and said, boy, these guys are really rusty. We see, you know, you, we, we've seen NBA games. We've seen NFL games where clearly this is not the sport being played at the optimum level. I mean, I think tennis players did a really good job staying in shape. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad we don't find out. But I suspect, honestly, if you put players in quarantine for two weeks, it would be more of a mental challenge than physical. I mean, I don't, I don't think, you know, pick, pick a name. Uh, you know, I don't think Andre Rublev would, remer- would emerge from two weeks of quarantine and not know how to hit the ball. I think it would be much more mental than physical. But um, we, we do not have to have that that science experiment because yeah. if you say uh you can break quarantine to train uh you know you, you can't you can't hang out you can't linger you again you, you had to uh list your practice partner so this is not um you know this this is not like one of these work release programs where you, you spend 12 hours in south beach and then you've got to go back to the detention facility i mean this is a a strict quarantine but um but between that between the practice breaks and also these these tournaments the week before the Australian Open begins, I, I think players will be in, in pretty decent form. Good, good. Uh, you released a, a predictions article, which is great for me. Gave me material pretty, uh, pretty easily. Um, two that caught my eye. Andre Rublev to win a first major. Where'd you, uh, how'd you land on that? What's the line about predictions? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fool's game, especially if they take place in the future or something like that. Yeah. Was, it, was um, it the gut? Was it the gut? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like this guy quietly, in part because it was a crazy year, in part because um, his results at the majors didn't quite keep pace with his other results. This, this guy was a top three player, though, in, uh, in 2019, in 2020. And he's been through... He's been through a lot. There's a very solid game there. He seems like one of these pros, pros who really, you know, this is uh, Booger McFarland territory. But this this guy, uh, this guy's all business. This guy cares more about winning matches than the Instagram. Um, it's true. It's true. But, He's got um, the Nadal, Nadal like right? He does. Right. He has- um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I'm still not sold on Zverev. Team, this is sort of first player to win their. I think I did this. Tell me if I'm wrong. I don't have in front of me. This was sort of first player to uh, the player to win their first major. Player to yes, come off the correct. best player never to have won a major list. So we've disqualified the big three and Murray and team and uh, you know team obviously the most recent. So um, it's, it's basically I, I don't know what, what would you say? Sitsipas, Zverev, Rublev, Medvedev, other. Who would you pick to win their first major? The closest tennis-wise, I would say, would be Zverev. But, you know, obviously he he's kind of been stuck in a certain spot for a little while now. And I think off-the-court stuff might have something to do with that. Tsitsipas, um, I, I really like him on clay. Um, Rublev, again, it's, it's tr- a trajectory thing, I think. So he's getting better so fast. It's like, is he going to level off or is he going to come out you know, and improve his transition game and have better volleys in 2021 and hit better approach shots. So it's very tough between those three. I would say Medvedev though should also be in the conversation. It's, it's close between those. It's very close. What I'm cheating and I'm looking this up in, in crazy COVID 2020 Rublev played 51 matches. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a full season. Yes. So I, I don't know if that uh, you know five five titles, not bad. Um, you wonder if uh, if if he isn't due for a little bit of fatigue. Um, as a thought exercise, we could say what what's more impressive to you, serving for the U.S. Open title, or taking the, in the in the U.S. Open final, or uh, taking the doll to a fifth set in a U.S. Open final. So, so this is Medvedev versus Zverev. Sure. Which, which sure. of those is, is closer to the precipice? Which of those is pr- predicts a, a future major? Uh, co- coming within a game against Dominic Team and failing to close the door or playing Nadal to five sets? Medvedev's five sets. You have a big gap in, in quality of tennis there, at least. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, that wasn't the nerve-stricken match that the 2020 U.S. Open final was. Uh, the, the second prediction I wanted to ask you real quick about is uh, Federer potentially calling it quits after 2020, right? Um, you, now, now, you didn't say that he'd go out with a whimper. You're expecting him to, to come out and, and fight hard, but uh, it, it seems like you're thinking maybe the, the end is, is very, very close. Um, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're all That's a sort tough of, one. We, we, we hope he plays till he's 80, everyone. But, um, no, and I, I mean, I think we should also step back and say the absurdity of talking, even as an open-ended question about a, a player who's going to turn 40, uh, you know, re- remember for, for decades, eligibility on the senior tour, you know, where you let the ball kids play a point for you and you try it behind the back shot and you. The, the age eligibility cutoff was 35. So this guy's, this guy's five years into uh, senior tour eligibility. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, I mean, obviously, physically, who knows what's going on with the knee. Um, I, I think by all accounts, it's been um, a, a frustrating 10 months or so. I, I think starting with Federer himself, but most people thought this knee would heal a lot quicker. I, mm-hmm. I also wonder, though, about the impact of COVID because Federer would get asked about this. And, you know, understandably, he doesn't want every single press conference, every tour stop, some the local guy comes and says, how long are you going to be doing this for? And he's got to come up with some answer that doesn't get everyone in a, in a tizzy, but also doesn't, you know, uh, ignore reality. And he, the one thing he always said was, he's still enjoying it. It's still a great life. He gets to travel the world with his kids. Um, you can't do that anymore. I mean, the, the Federer family used to go... It was very endearing. I mean, the whole family would go to Australia. So you'd see four kids and his parents would come and it would be like uh, three generations of fetters in Melbourne. Um, you can't do that anymore. And I think where we're focusing a lot, um, you know, on, on age 39, we're focusing a lot on the knee. I wonder if these changed travel restrictions and logistics and the sort of overall vibe of everyone gets on the plane and we're going to go somewhere cool. And one week it's going to be roller coasters in Cincinnati. And then it's going to be the MoMA in, in Manhattan. I mean, it's, it's, you know, those, those kids are, uh, it's, it's, it's a great life. That doesn't really happen these days. And I wonder if that isn't a factor that we are um, overlooking that the appeal of being able to do this job with your family in tow, um, that's going to change. He can't bring the whole gang to Melbourne. And I'm, I'm sure he's the, the knee is first and foremost. Well, he's that's why he's he's going to take a pass in the Australian Open this year. But um, you know, it's it's changed the the family dynamic as well. And when you're at, at his stage, I think that's that's relevant. I think so too. And uh, I love that point. If you want to flip it around for for the Roger Federer fans, you could say 
well, maybe he'll try to hold out and uh, hold on for another year so he can have that normal send out off right. with the, the full crowds and, you know, full capabilities to kind of celebrate the end of his career. Uh, let's, oh, did you have something there? No, that's, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, if, you know, Pfizer, Pfizer willing, um, he gets Pfizer. a property, uh, you know, he gets, he gets a proper send off in, in 2022, as crazy as that sounds. Uh, I mean, I think the Olympics is an interesting factor. The fact that labor cup, uh, is not in Europe. How does that impact things? A lot of variables. Um, I, I also believe when, when Federer said as recently as last year, like, honestly, I don't know. I think there's probably some truth to that. I mean, I don't think he's one of these guys mm-hmm. who circled a date on the calendar. And I, I think you're right that uh, that's a good point. Maybe you just stay in shape and sort of uh, cruise through this year and you hope travel restrictions loosen and things snap back to normal. And then 2022 is when you, but, but I, I do think we all ought to just pause for 10 seconds and reflect on, how absurd it is we're even having this conversation. I mean, we, we always say, but you know, Mac, McEnroe didn't win a major after he turned 25, and Sampras has this amazing comeback. He's back from the graveyard. Um, I think he was 30 or 31 when he won mm-hmm. that final U.S. Open. So the fact that we're talking about a, a guy who turns 40 years old in 2021 is, um, is probably worth uh, marveling for, before we dig deeper. But 100%. good question. 100%. Um, I read scorecasting over over quarantine okay that is a for those who have not checked it out okay it's a myth busting book about the the things we say in sports you know like uh uh why home field that's not the things we say but why uh does home field advantage matter and and all that good stuff is there you know i feel and i also heard you add craig o'shaughnessy on uh on your podcast um where do you think tennis analytics is going? Because I think that we'd both agree. And I think anyone who kind of has an open mind to this agrees that it's a little bit behind and there's more potential to be untapped. So I know that this is too broad a question for you to, to really answer properly, but tennis analytics, five years, what do you think are going to be some of the things, the innovations that we'll see? That's uh, that is a great question. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of it's it's hard. I mean, on, on the one hand, te- tennis is lapsed behind other sports. Um, I mean, I do think that you know you, you don't get less data, right? I mean, AI doesn't go backwards, um, so you you can only think about some of the advancements and some of the there's going to be increased precision and there's going to be you know, players are going to have easier access to data and they're going to be more cameras and it's going to be cheaper, um, which is just kind of how technology rolls. Part of the problem with tennis though, is just finding meaning in the stats. And um, I mean, you referenced, you know, Craig is terrific at this. Um, does a high first serve percentage mean you're, you know, high, high batting average in baseball? Great. Guys, guys on a hot streak, guys making a lot of free throws and he's shooting the ball well. Not as simple in tennis. Um, does a high serving percentage mean you're serving well, or does it mean you're not taking your chances? Um, think about how many stats in tennis have to do with the opponent. We have this, I always think it's a silly stat. I and mean, it's great that I guess the technology exists, but you have distance covered. Hmm. And you say, well, yeah, if you're 
running corner to corner and, and retrieving and hustling, that's admirable. On the other hand, if you're dictating play and you're at the tee and you're making your opponent run side to side, you may cover less distance, but you're dictating play the way you want to. I mean, so many stats in tennis um, are what we call dirty. I mean, it's just not, not clean data. And so I think some of it is tennis becoming more conversant in technology and analytics, but also really finding um, the stats that are meaningful and really finding that the metrics that are going to help you improve and aren't just, you know, breaks, break point saves. He's only one of five on break point save. Well, if there's a four all game and you get to break point, you know, five times and on the fifth one, you convert it with a winner down the line, you skip to your chair. You're thrilled. Your coach is standing up, pumping your fist, um, saying you're only 20% on breakpoint conversions is, is a silly stat. So I, I think some of it is just getting more conversant, but also really refining the stats so they reflect what's going on and uh, really sort of thinking about how to clean these up so this is meaningful data and not just, not just numbers. Yeah, I would... I would love for the the page that comes up at the end of the match and shows you all the stats. I would love for that to look very different very, mm -hmm. very soon. Get get stuff like rally length in there. That is so much more valuable than first serve percentage and first serves one percentage and, and all that. So I agree. Well, what, you, you want to keep going on this? I, mean, I, I love this stuff. So, well, uh, I, I know you well, do. <laughs> you wrote, about, a, wrote a book on Just think about it. rally length. Um, don't you need to know what percent of the rally lengths are comprising the match. So in other words, if someone says he's, mm -hmm. win, you know, he's, he's winning 80% of the rallies that are 10 shots or more. Well, if, if only five rallies last that long, it's really not that important. If 20 of the rallies are 10 shots or more, that's a much more meaningful statistic. So, I mean, again, it just, it just seems as though there is so much data being flung around and sometimes it can be very helpful and other times it can be very, very, misleading um mm -hmm. i mean again craig craig o'shaughnessy is great at this as well as of really finding the um really finding the whatever the cliche is the, the weed and the chaff but um you know you're you're right i think i think rally rally length and who wins the majority of rallies of three to five shots that's something that's a lot more important than winners versus errors especially when and a lot of people don't even you know hardcore fans don't always realize this winners includes aces so mm -hmm. John, John Isner can have 40 winners. And if 33 of those come on aces, he may well lose the match. So um, anyway, I mean, I, I think this is, a, this is an area where tennis could and should improve. But I, I do think also, in fairness to tennis, just the nature of the way the sport is played, the opposition, the, the rallies, the fact that you don't dictate any shot other than you're, you're always dependent on your opponent for every for every ball, um, it, it's not as clean as how many jump shots are you making or how many mm -hmm. com completions do you have? Yeah. And that makes it almost more exciting. And then if we got into Hawkeye, I mean, there's, there's endless opportunities with data and statistics that just come from tracking the, the flight of the ball. Um, but yeah, we could, we could go an hour on this. Um, and we won't. <laughs> well, I was going to say, let's not, but yeah. uh, good, good. Uh, yeah. I like your question though. It's a good question. Uh, let, well, let's end on, on Jerry Seinfeld. I, I have to. Um, so you're interviewing Jerry Seinfeld for 60 minutes and he is mocking the 
style of a 60 minutes interview during the interview. How does that feel? <laughs> oh, like, oh, oh, you mean the walk and talk? Oh, the walk and talk. Yeah, yeah, the walk and oh, talk. No, right. He's, uh, he's, turning, oh, he's, so how does it feel? I guess my question is Jerry Seinfeld is creating bits out of your interview while you're interviewing him. What is that experience like? Um, no, I mean, that's, that's what he does. This is a, a comedian's <laughs> comedian. And uh, we were, you know, he go, goes out to dinner with his wife and uh, she wants to talk about, you know, whatever, the, the kid's school curriculum. And he's looking around the restaurant for, uh, you know, you ever wonder why the chopsticks come together? Why don't they break it apart for you? Like ev everything is, uh, he, this is his great key to success as he finds humor in everything. He was, um, I'll tell you two things. He, he was great. Um, the pandemic sort of complicated that interview because, you know, whatever, you, you, you can't shoot stories the way you normally can. So we wanted to do it outside and he wanted to do it. He had very emotional ties to, um, to Corona Park. It what happened to be that was the day of the semifinals of the uh, semifinals of the, of the U.S. Open. Um, and at one point we had even sort of joked about trying to sneak in. And then, um, I have to say to their credit, I, I asked the USTA, I said, listen, uh, you know, I'm going to be a little discreet here, but I have a sort of celebrity that's interested in coming to the tennis. And they sort of said, well, is he, is he willing to be tested? Is he, I mean, they had such strict protocols that, uh, J Jerry, getting Jerry Seinfeld into the U S open was, um, was, was not going to be possible, but we did that interview. He, he was terrific. And I think that's, um, it's funny you mentioned that, but I, I think that's really part of his appeal. I, mean, I think there's really a deeper lesson there. He's always looking for humor. Um, but it was very strange sort of do, doing that interview as Dominic team was playing uh, a few hundred yards away. Um, but uh, the yeah, world's it's, it's colliding. Funny. I mean, huh? the, uh, I, yeah, exactly. Right. Right. I mean, the, the pity of that interview is um, he, he was fantastic and he was, he was very generous with his time and we spent I mean, you know, hours and hours and you boil these pieces down to the best 12 minutes. But, um, you know, we, we could have done a two hour comedy special based, uh, <laughs> based solely on that day. He was, uh, he was very funny. Yeah, it, it was very funny. And I mean, it's like, just to know that Jerry Seinfeld doesn't turn off is, <laughs> yeah, right, is good to right. see, you know, the, the right. fact that, that it doesn't change. All right. Well, uh, this has been awesome and I really appreciate the time. We'll, we'll, we'll do it again soon. Um, always great having you on John. You got it. Maybe we'll uh, be live at an event next time. I like the sound of that. All right. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini yeah, it's fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.